to live with it. <laughs> anyway, here we are, um, and uh, I'm really glad Diana didn't miss out the juicy bit because we're going to have the whole passage as I uh, work my way through it. Uh, but I want to start by saying, wasn't um, last term's sermon from Tom fantastic? Those of you who were here, it was completely inspirational. I wasn't here. <laughs> but I've heard lots of people talking about it, um, and I, I feel as if I was because of everything that everyone said. And if you haven't heard about it, then please do go online and, and listen in because it's really worth uh, a listen. What he was doing was he was kicking off our new sermon series. Did you get my football reference? Kicking off. Okay. That's it, all right? That's it, guys. Don't worry, no more football reference. But he was kicking off our new sermon series on Mark's Gospel, which is called A Life Worth Living. And when I was listening online, I found myself wanting to jump out and up and down and shout, yes, yes, to the challenges that Tom was issuing. Because he called us to leave our nets, whatever that might mean for each one of us, things that are holding us back, to leave our nets and follow Jesus now. And he challenged us to consider whether we're a follower of Jesus, ready to go wherever he wants us to go, or whether we're simply a fan of Jesus, happy to touch base on a Sunday, but not really wanting to go any further or deeper than that. So as I say, do listen on the website if you, did, if you missed it. And there are some copies of Mark's Gospel out in the welcome area, left over from when we had a mission a couple of years ago. They're kind of blue and white covers. So if you don't have a Bible at home or you want to take one away or give one to somebody so you can read through the whole thing, uh, there's testimonies of church members in there, and you can even scribble notes on there if you want. It would be lovely to see them all gone because they've been knocking around my office for long enough. So that was last Sunday. Then we had our prayer and vision evening here on Wednesday. Really exciting evening. I think uh, upwards of 60, 70 people came came to that. Um, And we started to think about what our DNA at St. Paul's is, what we're like. And we were also thinking about what's good that we can build on and also what new things God might be wanting to do with us. And it's the start of, oh, I don't know, about 10 months or or a year's process of discerning where God might be wanting to take us as a church. So coming back to work, as I did after all the busyness of Christmas and then a week off, all this happening, it's really exciting, a really exciting time in our church. And Mark's gospel is a breathless and action-filled narrative. He dashes from one event to the next. Now, I don't know if you know this, but from about AD 300, the gospel writers have been allocated different symbols uh, relating to the four living creatures of Ezekiel. Uh, And the one is a, a human, one is a lion, and one is an ox, and one is an eagle. And these symbols occur repeatedly on medieval illuminated manuscripts. I hope we've got a picture of the Book of Kells, the Irish Book of Kells. There they are uh, in the Book of Kells. That's from about AD 1800. But this uh, linking of the gospel writers with, um, with symbolism goes back further than that, as I said. So Matthew is the human. Matthew's gospel is the human. He's the teacher. Mark is the lion. 
Luke is an ox and John is the eagle. And what those symbols are, they kind of give, um, they reflect the fact that each gospel gives a different portrait of the same person. You know when you see paintings of people and if you looked at uh, portraits by different portrait painters of the same person, they would all look very different. And that's what's happening here. They're a different image of Jesus, emphasizing different aspects life. So for Matthew, he focuses on Jesus's teaching and the fact that he fulfills Old Testament gospels, hence the uh, the human, the teacher. Luke's ox reflects the sort of plodding journeys that ox carts make and his focus is on the journey to Jerusalem and to the cross. And also, of course, the ox was um, a, a sacrificial animal back in the days of the temple and Jesus going to his sacrifice on the cross. So he picks up that element too. John's eagle is Christ risen and glorified, like a kind of like an eel rising into the air with with the, the people sort of wings outstretched over the people. And glory is a big theme in John. And Mark, well, as I said, he's symbolized by a lion. Now, in the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis describes Aslan, the lion, which is, I'm sure you all know, the Christ figure in the stories. He describes him as suddenly appearing over the sea without warning, but exactly when he's needed. This is what C.S. Lewis writes when he first uh, talks of Aslan appearing. Aslan was among them, though no one had seen him coming. And likewise, Jesus suddenly appears on the scene in Mark. He's fully grown. It's at the right time, bang on ready to start his ministry. Mark wrote in verse 9, which you looked at last week, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So arriving on the scene suddenly, and Aslan in the stories moves in great leaps um, and bounds, and he's going from one place to the other at speed, and and, uh, Lewis writes, he rushes on and on, never missing his footing, never hesitating. Now these words, at once, immediately, as soon as, and words like that are words you will notice over and over again as we go through Mark. It's breathless stuff his gospel. It's just like a lion running at full pace. In chapter one alone, Jesus is baptized. He proclaims the kingdom of God and the need for repentance. He heals a man with an unclean spirit. He heals Peter's mother-in-law and many others who are sick or possessed. He travels throughout Galilee, uh, preaching and healing. And finally, in chapter one, we hear he heals a leper who comes to him on his knees. Mark's Jesus is an action man and the pace is unrelenting. For Mark, the time is always now, and the things are urgent. And then there's the kingly aspect of a lion in Mark's gospel. The lions are often referred to as the king of the jungle. Mark's Jesus is invested with royal power and authority from on high. He's the king of kings. And we're going to take a look at that kingly authority in a moment. But I want to pause now from all this rushing about to stop and to pray. Because in verse 35, which we didn't go on to read, we had Jesus getting up very early, leaving the house and going to a solitary place to pray. Let's not be so busy doing at St. Paul's that we forget to stop and pray. Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, 
Help us to stop what we're doing, to pray and to listen to you. Help us to hear from you today. Help us to know the truth of what it means to come under your kingly authority and power and exercise it for ourselves. Amen. So now it's time to look at where Jesus' authority comes from, what he exercises his authority over, and how we can appropriate that authority for ourselves. Let's look back now into Mark. I think it was page 1003, if you wanted to grab a Bible from by the pillars and look it for yourself. But they're on the screen, the verses. So we have Jesus and his disciples. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Steve and I went to Capernaum once. I'm sure some of the rest of you have. We were on a trip to the Holy Land, and the foundations of Capernaum are pretty well preserved, as you can see from that photo we took when we were there. And I kept a journal while we were away, and this is what I wrote after our visit to the site. We toured the first century houses, with one being identified as Peter's sick mother-in-law's home. That's the one on the picture there. Now it has a very modern church suspended over it. As you can see, it was a bit like a sort of Star Trek Enterprise church. It's slung over it on pillars with a glass floor, and you can look down into Peter's mother-in-law's house. The 4th century synagogue is built directly onto its 1st century base. That's me in the picture, by the way. It's undoubtedly where Jesus taught and referenced specifically, as we heard from our guide, at the end of John 6 after his teaching about being the bread of life. What a special place. One of only three places so far on this trip where I felt really close to the real person of Jesus. I sat quietly and imagined the people sitting round the synagogue, just like I was, apart from the annoying cat, and listening to the words of Jesus, perhaps feeling their hearts lift and their spirits rise as he spoke, just as mine were, as I reread the words he spoke then. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Oh Lord, may I hunger for more and more of you. I'm seeing places Jesus saw. I'm walking in areas he walked. I'm hearing his teaching in places he taught. 2,000 years ago, my Saviour was born. He lived, he healed, he taught, he died and rose again. This I believe afresh and more solidly than ever before. The power and authority of Jesus' teaching were resonating down the ages still, as they do here today. Now, one of Mark's recurring themes is Jesus' authority over the powers of darkness, over sickness, and over sin. So where does that authority come from? Verse 22 on the screen, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So it comes from the uniquely intimate relationship that Jesus and God had. 
Jesus wasn't an official rabbi, so he didn't have any kind of direct teaching authority other than his personal claim to divine inspiration. But when he speaks, his listeners recognize that he doesn't speak as the earthly teachers of the law did. He speaks with the authority that comes from an exceptional and intimate relationship with God. The source of his authority, that's validated and confirmed by all the miracles that he did. And many of those miracles are recorded in, the Mark's, in Mark's Gospel, we'll see as we go through in future weeks. He demonstrates authority over sickness and also over sin. Do you remember the paralyzed man whose friends let him down through the roof of the house? And his, he was healed, his healing came when Jesus pronounced forgiveness for his sins. And then he shows his power over the elements because he commanded the sea to calm and the winds to be still. And let's not forget that he changed water into really jolly good wine. That was an excellent miracle. Finally, he shows his authorities from God by defeating Satan. And there are many recorded instances in Mark's Gospel of him casting out demons. And of course, ultimately, he defeats Satan by his death and his resurrection. And at that point, all his claims to be God incarnate were proven and his mission on earth was completed. So it's with good reason that Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 that God gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. So God is where his authority comes from, and that's why he can show that authority over sickness, over evil spirits, and over sin. Well, I just wonder if at this point, whether you're thinking, well, that's okay, that was Jesus, that was then, that was okay for him, it's not for now, it's not for us, none of this really can apply to us, can it? Well, let's have another little bit of a deeper dig in the passage and see why and how we can say this will apply to us. Well... Firstly, we're going to learn about the uselessness of intellectual knowledge of Jesus. The demons, they know who Jesus is. In verse 24, a demon says to Jesus, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Verse 34, we hear that Jesus drove out many demons, but he wouldn't let them speak because they knew who he was. Those demons certainly had an intellectual knowledge of Jesus. Now, do you remember I said last week that Tom asked if we were a follower or a fan of Jesus? Fans know about the person of Jesus. They know. They admire him. They t- Tom said they touch base on a Sunday. They sing about him. They read about him. They hear about him. But that's as far as it goes. It's an intellectual head knowledge of Jesus alone. Intellectual knowledge by itself will not save us. Demons knew Jesus for who he was, but their fate is still eternal torment in hell forever. And it's a really, really sad thought to me that some of those who think they're Christians are putting their faith in the doctrines and the rituals of Christianity and of the church and not in a personal relationship with Jesus They know Jesus with their heads, but not with their hearts. Dear friends, dear, dear friends, this term, as we look at how to live our lives to the full, my prayer is that we will not just know Jesus there with our heads, with our intellect, but they will grow more and more in love of him, 
with our hearts. And that we won't just base our relationship on him by what we hear from others or what we read, but by a personal, regular, maybe dare I say, even daily time with him, talking to him in prayer, listening to him, having a personal relationship with him. Martin Luther said this, it is one thing to say Christ is a saviour. It's quite another to say Christ is my saviour and my Lord. Which is it for you? The devil can say the first, Christ is a saviour. But only true Christians can say the second, Christ is my saviour and my Lord. Intellectual knowledge will not save us. Second thing we can take from this passage is where do we actually turn in times of trouble? In verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law lay sick of a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. And without question, I want to just lay this out there straight away, when we need healing, we go to the God-given, created, wonderful, awesome medical science. Okay, we do that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't use the wonderful creation of medical science to seek our healing. But let's not forget the one with authority over sickness and dis-ease. And I use that word carefully, dis-ease. It's not just disease, it's all other things that make us out of sync, out of kilter. Let's not forget to go with the one with authority over those. We need to cry to Jesus for help too. When sickness, loss trials or other problems just come crashing over us, we can do what they did in Capernaum. We can go and tell Jesus about it and throw ourselves on his mercy and receive what we need in our time of need. So intellectual knowledge won't save us, but let's turn in our time of trouble to the person of Jesus. And finally, the completeness of the healing that Jesus brings He takes Simon Peter's mother-in-law by the hand and immediately the fever leaves her. Now, I'm not too sure about the next bit, where the first thing she does is get up and wait on all those lazy old disciples and give them their dinner. I think they should have sorted themselves out that evening and given the poor woman a bit of a rest, but that could just be me. Never mind. Slight digression. Seriously, what I think that's really telling us is that she was 100% completely fully healed. She didn't need to recuperate. She could get up and do what she would have wanted to do, which was wait on uh, the guests. Jesus leaves no half-healed cases, no half-finished work. Everything in him is completed. If you remember, Jesus doesn't just have authority over physical illness. He also has authority over sin. And how many of us have what I might term sin-sick souls? Sin-sick souls. Struggling on knowing that we're not fully right with God. I suspect, and actually I quite hope, that I'm not the only one here who struggles with repeating sins. Who thinks, oh no, I've gone and done it again. Same old, same old. I hope I'm not the only one who goes around with a bit of a burden of guilt at times and who feels ashamed of certain aspects of my personality and my life. So I'm quite glad you don't really know what I'm like underneath and you can't read my mind at times. But I think this is what sin sickness is like. Things we just can't deal with on our own. 
So to myself and to you, I say, come to the one with authority to forgive sins. Come to the one who leaves no half-saved souls and no half-done work. Because he doesn't just forgive, he gives renewing power and grace as well. We can be completely restored, just like Simon Peter's mother-in-law was. Just like the paralyzed man was when his sins were forgiven as part of his healing. There's nowhere that we can go that is too far for Jesus to reach out and take our hand and restore us. Jesus joined in a struggle against the dark forces that were pouring into the world and are still active today. He took authority over the chaos they were causing and he brought calm. And through his outstretched arms on the cross, he formed the bridge across the gulf between man and God, between sin-sick man and God. And that's a bridge that we can cross to safety. On the cross, he completed the healing and the restoring work that he began that day in the synagogue in Capernaum. And here's the thing. Here's the thing, folks. Following Jesus gives us the authority to do the same. We have his authority We can stand against dark forces. We can speak healing into people's lives in our prayers for ourselves and for others. Forgiven people, folks, will be followers of Jesus, not fans. Forgiven people will love Jesus with their hearts and not just know about him in their heads. Forgiven people will want to stay close to Jesus, to follow where he's leading, to go and live life to the full with him. Jesus is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He has all the authority and power implied in that brief statement. Come into relationship with him. Turn to him. Be forgiven by him. Be healed by him. Know him in your life. Back to that lion of Mark's gospel. Forgiven people will want to go where the lion is bounding on, then roaring and calling us to go with him and bounding off again and not stopping to wait. That's what life with Jesus could be like. I'm going to give C.S. Lewis the last word, okay? It's back to Narnia, back to Aslan, and it's Lucy, one of the children, talking to Mr. Beaver. And this is what Lucy says. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Following Jesus won't be comfortable. It won't be predictable. But, oh boy, will it be exciting. He's the king, I tell you. Amen. And I'm going to hand over now to Jan, who's going to lead us in our prayers. Thanks, Jan. Hallelujah. (laughs) Jesus, we... Perhaps as we are in an attitude of prayer, Tom had us kneel before, and and I can't do this without kneeling. So if any of you want to join me just kneeling, then that's fine. If you don't, that's fine too. Jesus, we just... We thank you for the authority that you have delegated to us. 
we rejoice that you are King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. You're the Lion of Judah. Lord, we thank you that you are Almighty God. And we don't want to be just fans. We want to be followers.